Hello and welcome to Euromoney at COP26. My name is Lucy Fitzgeorge-Parker. I'm the editor for Sustainable Finance at Euromoney magazine, and I'm your host for this podcast, in which I'll be bringing you news and views from the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. Yesterday, I was lucky enough to have the chance to speak to a real climate veteran. Richard Matteson was CEO of TrueCost, one of the very first environmental data providers, for 15 years until it was bought by S&P Dow Jones in 2016. And he's now president of Sustainable One, a new division launched by S&P Global this year that brings together all the group's sustainability intelligence in one platform. Richard, you've been in the climate data business for 20 years. I, I assume you've been to, to lots of cops. How, how many are you up to now? I was trying to count that the other day. I think possibly 15. <laughs> right. Um, yes, quite a few. How would you say this compares with previous cops? Would you say it's been a success so far? I mean, I think most people are reporting this as a mixed success, but I, I would say it's a success. And the reason why is because um, the commitments that have been made at this COP have not just come from governments, they've come from the private sector. And in fact, for the first time, I believe uh, those commitments from the private sector are now officially being counted as part of our efforts to reduce in, uh, emissions and, and counteract climate change. Um, so, you know, the, the commitments of the private sector are really counting at this COP and they are creating pressure for, uh, for the, the uh, public sector actors as well, and, and vice versa, I think. So really, we have an, uh, a good tension, I would say, here between private sector commitments, public sector commitments that are required. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the buzz here is, is pretty exciting. I mean, from both a private and a public sector perspective, how credible do you think the big headline announcements have been? I mean, they, they really are... Um, pretty big announcements first first of all is what i would say so you know the glasgow financial alliance for net zero is committed to 130 trillion of assets shifting towards net zero um and uh, some of the commitments the governments have made around the protection of forests and, and uh, landscapes have been pretty significant too, um, and other commitments like methane and various other commitments. But I, but I do think those making those commitments also need to be held to account. Those commitments are pretty long term; they lack a lot of details, um, and we'll see uh, really where the planning comes in. That's where it's going to be critical. So, over the next year or two, where those 2050 commitments get documented into 2025 five action that's when we'll be able to really appraise the success of those commitments what have been the biggest missed opportunities so far in glasgow do you think i think one of the elements um that is currently missed is really around carbon pricing uh i think that um there is a big debate around carbon trading between countries. There's a big debate around uh, the use of voluntary carbon uh, markets by those who have committed to net zero from a private sector perspective as well. But the truth is 25% of the world's carbon is already priced uh, and is already traded. And so it's not like we don't have these mechanisms in place. What we do need is robust, a robust rule book for carbon trading, a robust way of approaching carbon pricing, uh, a deeper understanding of the complexity, I think. Um, but we, we, we can get there. And so the negotiations in particular around Article 6 are problematic. Um, and if they don't succeed, um, I think that will be a serious issue because um, at the end of the day, the use of carbon markets allows for the um, lowest cost abatement route. Um, and I think without it, 
will spend billions or trillions more on um, addressing climate change. So uh, I think carbon pricing is really a, a critical one that so far seems problematic. Okay, so well, you mentioned Article 6, and clearly that is something that is still being discussed. Now, I know that everyone isn't familiar with this, and I have well, still getting my head around the complexities. I did try reading the Paris Agreement uh, document, and I wasn't that much the wiser. But am I right in saying there are several provisions to Article 6, but one part of it covers the trading between countries. So if countries exceed their climate targets, they can then trade their excess with countries that have missed it. And there's also an element that covers uh, voluntary carbon markets. First of all, is that about right? Yes, it's Article 6 is really around the um, trading between countries, uh, and so how you actually enable um, countries to trade uh, carbon emissions with each other for the purposes of meeting their own reduction commitments. So originally this was kind of controversial because really, you know, you'd sort of think that every country would have to be forced to achieve its own reductions. Um, but actually uh, this this article allows for trading between countries. So if you can't achieve your own reductions and you see a lower cost route through carbon markets to, to doing that, then um, you would be allowed to buy uh, effectively credits off uh, another country. The reason why that's important is because it sets a, a very large precedent and increases the size of carbon markets, should increase the efficiency and liquidity of carbon markets as well. Um, and establish more clarity around carbon pricing. And it's, there's another reason which is important, which is what they're really uh, struggling to agree on, is where you make savings associated with those tradings, how, uh, how are those savings dispersed? Because actually there's an argument that uh, for developed countries, um, part of the um, uh, funding, if you like, through carbon markets should be dispersed to developing countries uh, to help them adapt to climate change. And so um, it's really about where the money goes, where the money flows and who spends it. Okay, well, you mentioned developing markets, and that was another thing I was going to ask you. Uh, obviously, you are the climate data information expert. There's been talk about the growing data gap between emerging and developed markets when it comes to climate and indeed ESG more broadly. And some people have suggested to me that this uh, could exacerbate the risk that some emerging markets get cut off from international finance. Do you think that is a risk? I mean, I think uh, all markets need to be part of the solution. We have $130 trillion, and they're not just focused on developed markets. Um, and so, you know, every asset manager, every bank, every insurance company, every pension fund, frankly, that is signed up to the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero will have to look across all of their assets at ways in which uh, you can shift those assets towards net zero. And so there is no way this is going to be exclusively focused on developed markets as easy as that might seem um and really that's not where most of the attention needs to be focused either if we have a look at um you know scandinavia for example have made huge leaps and bounds on uh, um uh you know um renewables uh you have uh, other western economies that have made you know, big differences actually, and and uh, have regulations in place, and probably are on track actually for a pretty uh, substantial reduction. Um, but actually, it's in developing markets, it's interventions like uh, you know the Asian Development Bank um, that is 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 going to be buying, setting up funds, and buying coal plants in Indonesia and the Philippines um, to operate and then retire them. It's those types of interventions that are going to be required. And I think any asset manager with global exposure has signed that is signed up to 
the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero will have to net zero all its portfolios, uh, not just the developed ones. So we'll see. It's it's an interesting dynamic. I think it's it's going to be particularly challenging in developing economies, I would say as well. Um, but we'll see. Well, we've also heard a lot of talk about uh, the need for standardisation of climate data and disclosure. And I mean, this is not a new topic. It's something that's been uh, since I started covering ESG 18 months ago. It was the first thing anyone said to me. And it's it's something that is still uh, top of everyone's wish list. Do you think that the prospect of achieving that is any closer today than it was two weeks ago before COP or, or even a year ago? Yeah, definitely. I think the IFRS uh, Foundation um, has uh, um, done a fantastic job at setting up the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB, lots of acronyms. Um, and uh, so we have the um, an emergence of a new accounting standard. And IOSCO um, and the securities regulators uh, have already signaled their intent to, um, you know, that, that many of the security regulators would be keen to adopt such accounting standards within their local jurisdictions. So what that does is, is it, it makes a big difference, I think, because it means that it really uh, uh, shifts the fog around what is the right way of reporting something, what is the right way of disclosing something. Um, and uh, so they've developed a prototype climate standard. Um, I think this is the kind of thing that's going to be very closely examined. Um, and really, I, I haven't heard particularly bad comments about that standard so far. Um, and I think that um, uh, what's exciting about it is that the standardization of, of disclosures makes it easier to disclose, where you allow too much flexibility on disclosure and you say you can you know uh, you you can you can use six or seven different types of ways of disclosing something then you either end up with sort of a bit of paralysis around what to do people get confused uh disclosure may not happen or disclosure may just not be consistent and quite frankly at S&P Global you know we analyze thousands of disclosures and last year for about 1700 companies that disclose carbon emissions and, and uh, similar information uh, we had to correct 2200 disclosures from those companies on climate just on climate so it disclosure currently is really all over the place uh it's not that uh you know those disclosing entities don't want to disclose i don't think it's it's just that the disclosures are not comparable and not in line with a standard that is just the one standard so we're making big progress. I think the um, the fact that the uh, you know the accountancy standard setters have stepped into this is incredibly helpful, um, and we really welcome uh, the, the efforts going forward. Okay, well, Richard, I have lots more questions I could ask you, but I know you have to run. So uh, thank you very much indeed for speaking today. It was uh, very interesting. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Lucy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's it for today. I'll be back with more news and views from Glasgow in our next episode, so please keep a lookout for that. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.